This episode is sponsored by Macmillan Audio. I love that audiobooks can make anything from waiting in the school pickup line to folding laundry a little more fun. And there are so many great new audiobooks coming out this month, including Mame by Jessica George, about a people-pleasing millennial and self-described late bloomer living in London who decides she's ready to experience some important firsts, from finding a flat share to pushing for more recognition in her career and throwing herself into online dating. I love traveling to England through books and the narration from Heather Ajapong, a British Ghanaian actress and photographer, really adds to the reading experience. Start listening to Mame by Jessica George now, wherever audiobooks are sold. Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kapinski, and today I'm so excited to have Marie Benedict on the podcast to discuss her new historical novel, The Mitford Affair, an explosive novel of history's most notorious sisters. And I can speak from experience, you will not be able to put this book down. I was completely swept away and just am still thinking about the characters and um, it's just fantastic. So I'm excited to get to talk about it. Yes, a little more about Marie. Marie Benedict is a lawyer with more than 10 years experience as a litigator at two of the country's premier law firms who found her calling unearthing the hidden historical stories of women. Her mission is to excavate from the past the most important, complex, and fascinating women of history and bring them into the light of present day where we can finally perceive the breadth of their contributions as well as the insights they bring to modern day issues. Marie's novels have been translated into 29 languages. Marie, thank you so much for coming on A Bookish Home, and congratulations on The Mitford Affair. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, I appreciate you reading and wanting to chat about this book. And well, if you know me, you know how much I love librarians. So also just a a shout out for all that fabulous (laughs) stuff too. Yeah, and I, you know, some of my favorite kinds of books are exactly what um, kind of you share in your bio about writing. I just love getting to kind of read about women's histories and stories that have been kind of overlooked or not brought into the light. And there's just so many interesting ones and you do such a great job of um, letting us experience those. So um, I would kind of love to hear a little more um, about kind of the premise of the Mitford affair and of course, sort of the real Mitfords. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, first of all, I just want to say it's such an honor and a privilege to tell these women's stories. You know, I feel so strongly. I mean, you you articulated my mission so well. I feel so strongly about it. There are all these women in the past who have made enormous contributions that we benefit from today. And my goodness, to, to actually have as my job shining the light on them and their legacies is is really a wonderful responsibility and a terrific honor. So I always just like to give that shout out because it is so, so crucial, I feel. Um, So, wow, the Mitfords. Um, The story was, so if you're familiar with the Mitford sisters at all, they were sort of the aristocratic it girls of the 1920s and 30s. Um, They were um, of high English society. Um, Each of the six sisters was more beautiful, brilliant, eccentric, troublesome than than the next. (laughs) Um, And they were really the stuff of headlines. In fact, their mother famously um, once said, "Um, if I see the phrase Pierre's daughter in the newspaper, I know it's about one of you six. And that certainly proved to be true throughout that, that time period. 
as the years progressed and we sort of get into the 1930s and the lead up into World War II, um, two of the sisters become enamored of fascism. One leaves her British heir husband to marry the head of the British Union of Fascists. And the other, no, not a one, not one to let her other sister sort of trump her, um, decamps to Munich where she stalks Adolf Hitler and then becomes part of his inner circle. So it's um, their activities were, again, the stuff of headlines, but they were more than just sort of um, uh, a passing fancy. Um, at least that's what one of their sisters, the famous novelist Nancy Mitford, thought. And she was faced with um, really a terrible quandary of whether she should really delve into the world of her sisters and see what they were actually up to or stay loyal to them. And as the years progressed, that that sort of uh, conundrum comes to a head. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I, and I love getting to kind of go in the multiple perspectives and be in the different sisters heads, because especially some of them are just making wild decisions. Wild. I mean, crazy decisions, crazy decisions. Um, And, you know, it got me wondering kind of a little bit about how you um, research them and try to get really get to know their characters. And I'm sure there's lots of sources for what they're doing, but I'm also sure you had to kind of try to fill in a lot of missing pieces yes. in a way that you only can if you really, you know, are in their heads and know them so well. So how did you kind yeah. of go about all that? Great question. Um, you know, it's a little different with each of the women that I write about. Um, how how I approach it is the same, but with the source material gives me is very different (laughs) depending on each book. So, you know, in this, in in every case, I really am looking for whatever I can in the way of original source material, letters, accounts in the woman's own hand, um, by her journals, diaries, things like that, or by people who knew her at the time. Um, And once I've sort of exhausted that, I'll cast my net wider and look at um, a lot of secondary sources. I try to avoid those if I can. And then I'll go farther still and really look at everything I can from a macro and micro component of the world they inhabit. You know, part of that is to create a very believable um, world for my characters to inhabit, but it's also to see what's going on in the world at large, in their in their realm, right, that could affect them. So that could be anything other from the big political stuff that's happening in the world of Midfords to what they're wearing and eating and drinking and, you know, reading, that kind of thing. So that that sort of approach is the same for whatever book. But this, this book um, presented some unusual, interesting challenges. On one hand, there was a tremendous wealth of information, right? These sisters... Um, all six of them were well known to some degree in their day, some much more so than others. Um, And they were prolific writers, Um, even though they kind of grew up as a feral pack in the English countryside, you know, they're six sisters, they're varying ages, they're going different places. And so they're always writing to one another. And those write those letters for the most part have been preserved, which is an amazing snapshot into how they communicate to one another, what their interior thoughts are, what how they 
um, speak to one another, the kinds of things they're musing about, considering, um, all of those things were super helpful. Um, but then there's another layer to that. So each, almost every single one of the sisters wrote her own autobiography or memoir <laughs> at different oh times, which usually yeah. is a fantastic source of information, right? Like when I wrote um, The Mystery of Mrs. Christie a few years ago about Agatha Christie, she wrote a memoir and I was so excited to find it. In this case, it was almost too much and too little information, right? So the sisters are giving in these memoirs and autobiographies, they're giving all sorts of snippets about their lives. And yet you have to approach their writing with a degree of skepticism because they are um, spinners, you know, they're spinning their truths in the way that's most flattering or most um, uh, user-friendly for them, right? So Diana Mitford, for example, who wrote a couple different autobiographies and some articles and a variety of things, um, she, um, as I mentioned, became enamored of fascism, married Sir Oswald Mosley, who was the head of the British Union of Fascists. They, she also became very close to Hitler and the upper sort of upper leaders of the Nazi party in Germany. Um, and she wrote about it, but only very sparingly and only um, with a very particular flattering lens, right? So you kind of got to dig into the past in and around their own depiction of the past to come up with what you sort of envision the truth or, or your fictional truth to be, right? Um, so it's interesting in this case that you had, I had letters, I had newspaper accounts, I had um, all, memoirs, autobiographies, I had Nancy Mitford's own famous novels, The uh, Pursuit of Love and Love in a Cold Climate, which are veiled autobiographies. Um, and yet you had to sort of sift through the wheat and the chaff in some of these and, and to come up with what what my version of the story would be. It's so interesting. And I feel like in terms of kind of the scope of the time period and, and where we go as readers, it feels like something I definitely have not seen played out at all. Like it was almost hard to wrap my head around the idea of British high society being enamored of, of Hitler and like going and spending time in Germany, which of course, I, I mean, I guess before the war, that would have been maybe something people were doing, but it just felt knowing what we know now it just felt so bizarre. And right. I wondered what it was like ha trying to kind of uh, imagine thinking that way, I guess. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's such a good question, because that was the hardest part of this book is, you know, as you mentioned, it's told through three different perspectives. One's the first person perspective of Nancy Mitford, who's sort of my main character in many ways. Um, she's the one who's faced with the quandary she has to act. Um, the other two, I use very intentionally third party perspective. Um, and in Envision, those are Diana and Unity Mitford's perspective, the two sisters who ultimately become fascists and Nazis. Um, and getting into their mindset was very challenging. Um, very, um, very, not only surreal, but also really upsetting at times, particularly Unities, who becomes yeah. the closest to Hitler. Um, she's really part of his inner circle. Um, and the best way I could do that was, is, was really to go back to the primary 
um, sort of theme or realization of the book, which is that politics, pol- political decision making in, in this case and in, even in today is very personal. And so when I was looking at the choices that the unfathomable choices that unity was making to, to embrace Nazism and, and, and march around with a swastika on, I mean, it was just unbelievable. Um, I had to ask myself, why is she doing this? Does she really believe it? What would make a, a person who would seem giving her upbringing and her opportunities would what you would think would make sensible choices, make absolutely unfathomable ones. Um, and it was only through kind of trying to understand that, not sympathize with it, but understand it, um, that I was able to even approach and write some of these scenes. Because like you said, knowing what we know, know now, how could they sit down to tea with Hitler? And right. yet they were hardly the only ones. There were so many, as you mentioned, English high society folks who really supported this um, horrible, extreme political perspective. Um, and some of them even saw it through to the end. And, and that was something I was actually trying to understand in this book. Well, I think that's another really important part about historical fiction, because you're not just reading about people doing that, you're really experiencing their choices firsthand. And I think that's important in terms of seeing how do people get caught up in really terrible political ideologies and regimes? And how do people rationalize their choices? How do family members rationalize, maybe not doing anything about it. I mean, it's all so relevant as well in that whole idea of, you know, trying to have history not repeat itself. Um, Exactly. Oh my God. um, It was just really interesting kind of being that close to those decisions as a reader. Um, But it made me wonder too, was it hard at times to kind of be in such a, excuse me, such a like heavy mm-hmm. time as a writer. I mean, I'm sure it's all consuming and all you're thinking about is your book for, I don't know how long it takes, but it was <laughs> probably a year. Yeah. And um, was that difficult to kind of be in that space so much? Oh yeah. I mean, it was very heavy. I mean, I intentionally chose it. You hit the nail right on the head. I mean, I wanted to explore something that was very timely. That was very troubling to me. Um, something that I, and I often will choose a woman and a topic in a time period because I'm, I'm working through something myself. You know, it's something that, that is a, an issue or, or something that's, that's really inhabiting my, my mind. And I need, and the historical fiction is really the way that I work some of that through. Um, and so I was really working through my own thoughts as I was working through what these sisters were, were doing. And it was hard and heavy and difficult. And sometimes I wanted to, to abandon the project. <laughs> um, and yet I wanted to see it through at the same time, right? I wanted to see what was motivating Diana and Unity, how they could make the choices that, that they did, whether they would see it through, um, and, and how Nancy, who's the one who's ultimately faced with the choice, how is she going to rise up and make this really difficult decision without spoiling too much, um, between her sisters and um, her country, 
um, her sense of what's right. And, and these are decisions that a lot of us are being faced with today. And it, and it really helped me kind of parse through um, decisions people are making in our current time without judging those decisions, helping me understand what those what's what's entailed in those decisions. Um, and kind of look at what what people who are faced with family members who are making these choices, how they react at what, what is the tipping point, right? At what point do people rise up? Sometimes in this book, I got very frustrated with Nancy, right? Cause she could see what her sisters were up to. Maybe not fully, of course, at first. And of course she didn't have the benefit of hindsight. Like we, we really, these characters really did not fully know what Hitler was up to. Um, did not know the full scope of his plans. They had hints and, and, Unity in particular knew a lot, but they didn't know everything. And Nancy certainly didn't know everything. So at what point was she going to act? Um, and, you know, this book, of course, this is based on, I, I write, it's a fictional account of a very real conundrum. Um, and Nancy was faced with it. And only recently were there MI5 documents released, which show her involvement in this ultimately decision. Now, of course, I have fictional liberty to embellish or, or explore those decisions in slightly deeper ways because there's certain things we don't know. But, um, you know, it was amazing going into each of these different kind of nooks and crannies of these three sisters, um, just how topical it was. Well, and it's interesting what a front row seat they have to the whole political mm. scene. I mean, oh my they're interacting with Churchill and <laughs> his wife and then also yep. Hitler at the same time. Yep. I mean, it just is unreal. Um to have that kind of, I don't know, I guess, access at yeah. the oh, yeah. time is um, crazy to think about. It is. I mean, and and it was amazing to think, too, like, that they weren't alone. There was this whole echelon of upper British society, which... By the because of the way society was structured at that time, usually people in these upper classes also had governmental high governmental roles. They were kind of interchangeable, so they they had a front row seat. New people in both Britain and Germany who were you know who were literally making history. And these sisters, given their access, like you said, and given their inclinations, they actually could have influenced um, the outcome of World War too, in a variety of ways. Um, in fact, I did read somewhere that Unity was probably the the person with the, the English person with the closest access to Hitler. Wow. And, um, and that's amazing to think about, right? But of course, they were, Diana and Unity were being used for, they were using and they were being used as well. Um, it was a very sort of symbiotic relationship that they had with um, these, these powerful male figures. In well, could you talk Germany. about that a little bit? Because I, I thought that was interesting, too, that the German government at the time was sort of trying to show, like, see, we have these sisters here. Britain mm-hmm. approves of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Hitler was insidious at first, right? And he, he knew um, that there was a chance that they could explore exploit, excuse me, that, that relationship that even though things obviously fell apart after World War One, and there was a lot of animosity between the Germans and the English, there was this um, upper echelon of British society, which had long standing ties to the German 
again, upper classes, which predate World War One. You know, some of it has to do with the intermarriage of the royal, um, the, the royal, the royals, um, and some of it had to do with um, the way that those two societies had interacted historically. And and there were some who felt in that group who felt that um, through the Treaty of Versailles, the Germans were being unfairly treated, and and after World War One, were were okay reestablishing that that connection and that relationship. Um, so, you know, looking at that sort of piece of history, which I, it is explored in some extent, to some extent, but that, that, that interrelationship between the Germans and the English, I think hasn't really been closely looked at. And, it, and I really became intrigued at the way these sisters had the capacity because of their relationships to effectuate change and um, political decision making, not overtly, no one would look at Diana and Unity at first and think, oh, oh, they can sway Hitler or they can sway Churchill. But insidiously, over time, it became apparent that that access had power attached to it. Yeah. And the, the only thing it makes me think of too, I think that people who are fans of the crown will enjoy this book a lot. It made me think of those scenes where uh, Philip, Prince Philip is going back and forth when he's younger between Germany and England and right. um, his sisters, I think are Nazis, but then he's yeah. a Royal. And I just think it's interesting. to kind of- we, we really don't understand. Americans don't know. Maybe the, you know, the Brit, the European view of world war one and world war two is very different than the American view of world war one and world war two. Not only are we a little bit more removed from it, but there's this web of preexisting relationships, which are in, uh, which are involved in all these decisions um, that we really aren't as privy to. And we're not necessarily taught in history, in our history classes. Um, but you're right that that um, reverberation, um, plays out in so many different ways um, throughout history. And there's so many people in the upper class of English society during that time period who were pro-Nazi. In their, it, a lot of um, moneyed, entitled, titled, not entitled, but they also were entitled, um, <laughs> British at that time, were really looked at it as a war between fascism and communism. They saw communism on the rise and they were very fearful of it. Um, they thought that it was going to strip them of their land and their money and their um, and their access, and um, they saw fascism as a the better of two evils, which is unbelievable to think about, but they really did. And so they this one faction of society really gravitated towards it. Um, so these sisters are maybe the worst example of <laughs> the most notorious, but there were many many others at that time. Well, that makes me wonder too, as you start to, um, you know, bring the book out into the world, do you think that um, like American readers versus maybe English readers have like a different reception? I know technically as we're speaking, the book is not out yet. So I guess maybe it's too early to ask that, but I'm just wondering like, if you think the audience will be different at all, or even like, I wonder I haven't seen, I, I love the cover Too. of our version. It's just like, uh, for people who haven't seen it, it's this very like vivid, there's pinks and purples and they've got these like glamorous outfits on and I just love it. And I wonder if like the way the book is positioned in England is different at all. That's a great question. I don't know the answer, but yeah. I've often been surprised with the reaction that 
my books have in different countries and reacting in different ways. You know, not only are the covers usually different, which is which is always super interesting to see the way in which a different society and culture interprets your ideas just visually, right? I'm not a visual I'm not an artist or a visual person, so that's always fascinating to me. But the reaction that I get is often really interesting. You know, for example, The Other Einstein, which was um, my first book of, of these, and it, it's about um, Albert Einstein's first wife, who was um, Serbian. She rose up from the backwater of 19th century Serbia, where it was illegal for girls to go to high school, to become one of the very first women in a university physics program. Um, they have embraced her. As one of all, all these Eastern European countries have just embraced the story of Maleva. She's one of their own. They're so proud of her. And so we don't look at it quite from that nationalistic perspective when we read her story, right? But there's something in it very that speaks specifically to them. So I would be curious to see how an English reader might interpret this story, or even if they're aware of it. You know, people who are familiar with the Midfords, I think are. I think they love that that sort of slice of interwar aristocratic life that Nancy Mitford depicts in the pursuit of love and love in a cold climate. Um, there's not a lot of heavy politics in there. It's sort of this idyllic moment with these very quirky sisters. And um, I think that that's what people associate with them. But if you scratch the surface, there's so much more happening with these six sisters. Each one of them is really reflecting a different aspect of that interwar period and the rise up into World War II. You know, I don't go into it in great detail in this book, but for example, Jessica, one of the sisters, she reacts to the same family background and the same sort of cocktail of cultural political influences and gravitates towards communism, right? Right. She becomes a communist. You have two sisters who become fascists. One says, forget it. I'm going to follow the aristocratic path. The youngest becomes the Duchess of Devonshire. You have Nancy Mitford, who's like the ultimate observer. She's like a middle of the ground politically. And she, of course, ultimately has to choose whether she's going to act or not. Do her sister's actions rise to the level of threat? I mean, if you look at it, it's like everything is playing out in this one family. And it's just, it's it's really incredible. There's so many things I could not include because <laughs> their, their story is just so sometimes scandalous, sometimes lascivious, and sometimes just too much for one book. Well, it's so fascinating. And it, it gets me wondering too, how much have we sort of lost in our understanding of history over time by not paying attention to women's stories. Oh, um, my goodness. And I'm I'm glad that you're bringing more to light. <laughs> um, I just think it's so important. And it's what I'm always interested in, in when it comes to history, the women's Me experiences. Too. Yeah. Well, you know, it's only recently that women's stories, women's histories, women's records are, have been considered worthy of keeping and telling. And, you know, when what when we look at the past, the women are always there. They are always contributing. They are always moving the needle. And yet, because of the way we've been sort of taught to look at the past, they're invisible. We we think right. their contributions are literally res- reserved to the hearth and home. But that could not be further from the truth. As you peel back the layers and look at the time, each of these different time periods from the female perspective, you see that women are making history over and over and over again. We just have to look and see it. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I wonder too, are are these the kind of books that you're drawn to as a reader as well? Or do you have to kind of read things that are very different to not kind of mess with your <laughs> your writing headspace? <laughs> well, you both are, both are true, right? I mean, <laughs> I do love these kind of books. I do. Um, I am drawn to these stories. Um, but very often, just like you said, when I'm actively writing, which these days seems to be all the time, but when I'm actively writing, it's very hard for me to read in the genre. It's very hard for me to read um, straight up historical fiction because it does start to permeate my own sort of the voices I hear in my own head, right, of these women. Um, I will do it, right, because I'm fortunate enough that other historical fiction authors have asked me to read their books in advance, which I'm so fortunate. Um, and I will in that case, but usually I will reserve a lot of those books to when I'm not actively drafting a novel. Um, while I'm writing, I will definitely um, be gravitate. I'm gravitated towards books that contain similar themes as this, right? Oh, um, that talk about the, I, I'm fascinated with the way the past reverberates into the present. And that topic can be approached from a whole bunch of different ways, right? Um, and so I like to explore it in my reading in different genres. So for example, um, I just did an event last week with Louise Penny, who, um, I don't know if you know her books. She writes the Inspector Gamache series. And and actually it's called the, it's just become a streaming series um, on Amazon called Three Pines last Friday. But her book came out last week and I did an event with her and I read her latest, which is A World of Curiosities, in which in the mystery genre, right, she's exploring the way in which past actions, past cases, past crimes are reverberating into the present. Um, and so that's kind of a different way to look at that theme that isn't specifically in the historical fiction space. So that's that's a safe one for me to read while I'm actually actively writing. Yeah. And I, I didn't realize that there was a new show out of that series. I'll have to check that oh, out. Too. I know. I haven't started it yet, but it's gotten terrific reviews. Yeah. And she's really happy with it, which is fun to hear about. Oh, that's good. Um, are there any other books you've read lately you'd want to recommend? Oh, my gosh. There's so many. Um, so right now what I'm reading, although I'm only partially through, is Kate Atkinson's uh, The Shrines of Gaiety, which is historical fiction-esque. So it's, it's one I'm kind of making an exception for, but not really. Um, one of her books, her earlier books, Life After Life, is one of my my all-time favorites. And so that's... Um, that's kind of why I, I went in that direction. Um, I also, again, while I'm um, writing, which I'm doing right now, I don't read a lot of historical fiction, except when people ask me very kindly. Um, and so I've kind of delved into some mystery, in addition to Louise Penny's books. I recently read um, Anthony Horowitz's uh, The Twist of the Knife, I think it's called, oh. which is like a really kind of good um I don't want to say palate cleanser, but it helps me when I'm writing to, to listen to something different and read something different. And what was the other one I was just thinking about? Um, I had on my, I just started, um, oh, um, Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. Um, oh. I'm, again, I, I read multiple books at once, which is a problem I recognize. Um, <laughs> and I'm about, I'd say maybe a third of the way through, and I'm really enjoying that as well. 
Oh, nice. So I'll definitely link to to all those. And um, yeah, I can't recommend the Mitford Affair enough. I hope people um, go pick it up at their local bookstores, get it at your library. Um, I think it would also um, be a great book to hand off to um, the people in your life who, as we said, like The Crown or like reading historical fiction or interested in kind of anything British yeah. would oh, be yeah. a great fit for that. And um, I'm so looking yeah. forward to continuing to read. And I actually, I did mean to ask, um, are you able to say anything about kind of the next um, subject that you're sure. um, writing about? Yeah, I ha- I'll have another book coming out next, um, a solo book coming out next. I think it'll be next spring. Um, and I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about that one yet, but I can talk about the one, my next co-written book, which comes out in June. Um, it's called The First Ladies. Um, I had written um, a co-written a book, The Personal Librarian with Victoria Christopher Murray. It came out two, about two years ago. And we have another book coming out, which is about the friendship between Eleanor Roosevelt and Mary McLeod Bethune, who was a very well-known Black activist and creator of um, uh, college in the 1920s and 30s. And these two women, a white woman and a black woman, became like BFFs in an era of segregation. And they honestly created the foundation for the civil rights movement. But nobody knows about their relationship and the work that they did. So that's been just an incredible experience. And um, I love my co-writer, Victoria. So it's it's been a, a really meaningful and powerful experience to write that book. Oh, that sounds great. I can't wait to read that one. Um, Well, Marie, this has been so wonderful. Thank you for coming on. (laughs) Congratulations again on the book. I so appreciate it. It's been wonderful to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.